Hey everyone, first off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast, and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past and present. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. Brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences. Produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, and coming to you still from our homes. I'm your familiar stranger today, Joe, together with my other familiar strangers, Alex. Hello. Matt. Hello. And Simon. Hello. So welcome, everyone. Alex, what have you been thinking about this week? Yeah, so this probably hasn't made news around the world. So to some extent, this may not be relevant to any of our listeners in the US or the UK, etc., etc. But the Premier of New South Wales, a state in Australia, has recently resigned very abruptly because she has become the subject of an investigation, ICAC, which is a tribunal that investigates corruption. But what's been interesting about this for me has been some of the discourse around the goings-on. So... In short, the Premier had a relationship with an MP, she didn't disclose, and through this, a few organisations in the electorate got some quite large government grants. And the investigation is to see whether the Premier used influence in the granting grants. Now, what I've found really fascinating is the discourse around this on the part of a number of MPs that I think that I think represents a shift in perceptions of the state. So a few New South Wales MPs, uh, in particular Barilaro, he said that he is sick to death of the mistruths spun about pork barrel and basically kind of saying that pork barreling is what elections are for. Now, pork barreling is traditionally a pejorative term. It's supposed to be something bad. And yet this idea that it's up to MPs to just kind of, you get everything for your local electorate can that is what you're elected for seems to be a more and more common way which i think represents a divergence of how we used to imagine the role of politician now there's a case to be made there i mean you are elected by your electorate but for me that seems a very different idea of the role of politicians what do you guys think do you think there's some sort of shift underway about how we perceive corruption but also kind of how the state and politics should operate I think one of the things that's worth mentioning as well is that um, John Barillaro has also resigned in the wake of all this. So the deputy, who former deputy premier, has now left. I'm not sure how far we can stretch this. John Barillaro is a particularly, I think, perhaps an extreme example even for Australia, where he's on record, and I'm quoting from The Guardian, as saying, call me Pork Barillaro. <laughs> this might be a naive question, but what is pork barreling? I don't understand that term. And I've never heard it before. Uh, so pork barrel, it actually comes out of the U.S. political system. And it's where a U.S. often congressman, sometimes senator, there's a big bill or an issue that needs to pass. And they'd kind of hold up a big bill or hold up a big piece of legislation or whatever until they got kind of like a sweet deal. Right. Okay. So it's like, sure, you can try and introduce like a national health care scheme, but you need my vote. And I want, I don't know, $100,000 for the local... Ooh, these two things that are ostensibly not hugely related, but you get it for your electorate. Right, right, okay. <laughs> thank, thank you for letting me clarify that. 
So I'm not sure how much we can generalise beyond New South Wales to save all of Australia. I'm not sure the Liberals would be as keen to openly admit to pork barrelling or Labour. In fact, Labour have really made a big deal of campaigning on introducing a national anti-corruption commission. So perhaps corruption will map itself onto the main political cleavage in Australia. Yeah, look, I think there's a point there, actually, that, I mean, crazy if corruption became part of the culture wars, right? I think we can actually open this up beyond just Western liberal democracies. There's a very good paper published in American Ethnologist by Sylvia Tidy, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, called The Ethical and the Right Thing, How Not to Be an Indonesian Bureaucracy in an Age of Good Governance. And the argument broadly in that paper is that people who end up in the state's bureaucracy in Indonesia have a whole range of social obligations to people who have raised them, grown up with them, provided them with job opportunities, um, educated them, all of this. But that clashes very directly with the sense of the correct way of behaving in bureaucratic institutions who not allow for the sort of reciprocal exchange of, of favours and exchange of goods in the workplace. So she does, I think, an excellent job in sort of mapping how that all works in Indonesia. And I suspect the Australian politicians would probably make a similar framing in that they present themselves as having some sort of reciprocal duty to their regional communities. Whether or not that clashes directly with questions in Australia, I couldn't say. But yeah, I think you're right, Alex, in saying that it raises questions about what we expect from the state and what the state sort of from us. I mean, the the state expects you, well, maybe not the state, but the politicians expect you to vote for them. <laughs> That's kind of the, the relationship between politician slash premier, you know, state slash citizen. It's like, I expect you to vote for me and I expect, and, you know, there, there is an expectation there of, hey, guess what? I'm trying to get back in office, so let me in. But exactly. There's a strong argument to be made that that's democratic. If that is what people expect to do, whatever they can, by hook and crook, get you know, the upgrade for the conference centre for the gun club, well, then they did what they were elected to do. I don't know, Simon, you're a bit of a political animal. Alex, you were saying that you think there's a changing relationship between state and politi- between people and politicians. But I don't really understand why you think that. So the reason I feel there might be a changing relationship between the citizenry, or at least the voting citizenry, and the politicians being elected is that I feel there's been a different discourse around the scandal. I think in a lot of cases it's as much from the MPs, as Joe pointed out, perhaps taking Barilaro's words is taking the extreme, reading too much into an extreme example. But at the same time, judging by a lot of the Australian media, they feel that Gladys Berejiklian, the Premier, has been forced out by an body, which basically true, she resigned. This investigative body was set up by elected officials. And yet the discourse around it, the way people are talking about this, at least from what I see, just feels different. We've seen this, there was also the car park scandal earlier. There have been a series of scandals under the current Liberal federal government where they have pretty blatantly shoveled money into marginal electorates, which has been a practice that's always happened. So I'm not saying that the practice itself is new, but there just seems to be a bit more knowledge of politicians that are saying, yes, this is what we do. This is why people elect us. Whereas in the past, often there was kind of a pretendy, oh, no, gosh, no, no, it was analysed by an independent body and decisions were made. And oh, what do you know? Just turns out all this money happens to go to marginals. So I suppose in the political science literature, the general reason for opposing uh, pork barrelling and those sorts of practices, parties cease to be campaigning on the basis of ideological differences or interest aggregators and become 
the distributors of patronage. And typically, if your primary goal is the distribution of patronage, you rarely have strong policy platforms. So the typical political science argument runs that the more you allow and the more you embed these practices into a democracy, over time, the weaker that democracy will become. I don't know, maybe I've just become, become very jaded. Joe's talking about the distribution of privilege and patronage and so on. I feel like that's been the kind of way that Australian politics has worked. Then can I ask, because, you know, there are elections and elected officials. What are their roles and responsibility, considering it is also the Ayatollah? Iran's system is an unusual hybrid where it claims both democratic institutions and a theocratic government, right? So, yeah, there is a supreme leader who is effectively the representative of God in the absence of the Imam Mahdi, who is in Shia theology, the last Imam, the one who is the kind of their Messiah, effectively. But at the same time, they also have a parliament and other organs of state which are elected theoretically by popular vote, but they're also so vetted by the unelected parts of government that it's like not a competitive election. I think people historically refer to it as a kind of like competitive autocracy or something like that. But increasingly, I mean, the last election, for instance, was not really competitive at all. The outcome was preordained. The people you spoke to, first of all, did they vote? And if any did, what did they expect? There was an election when I was there, a parliamentary election, and there's also presidential elections in Iran. I, I don't think you can even talk about expectation. Like, it's, it's such a fundamentally different relationship to power. I mean, but what do we expect in Australia, really? Like, I mean, if you asked anyone, you'd get like a thousand different opinions from a thousand different people of what they would expect from politicians. I have very extremely low expectations of my politicians. I basically expect the Liberal National Party to be some degree of evil, and then I expect the Labour Party to be slightly less able. Okay, that's all we've got time for on that. Matt, what have you been thinking about this week? This week, I've been thinking about how people, more in general, that have been in lockdown, how they can transition back into, quote-unquote, normal life, you know, the social interactions that come with that. And this comes from an experience that I had picking up food. I realised at some point that my social timing in answering questions is off by about half a second. And that half a second is the longest half a second you've ever experienced in your life. The person had asked me to confirm my phone number for the order. And I essentially sat there and waited for about half a second. And I said, oh, I'm supposed to repeat my phone number to this person for her to confirm. I was under the assumption that they were going to read it back to me. And I was like, wow, okay. I have very much lost my social interaction skills. And I was just wondering to you guys, has that happened to you guys? There's something we know from anthropology. It's that we're all socially strained. So to listeners at home, I uh, live by myself currently. I even had to quarantine for a bit. So I eat by myself with no one to watch me. And if you're not having meals with anyone ever, scoff food at a tremendous rate. But of course, I am going to have to read how to eat in front of people. I actually even noticed this a little bit when I was living by myself a few times with lockdowns a while ago, not for as extended periods. And yeah, when I caught up with people, I ate way too fast because if I'm by myself, I've no reason to go slow. So Simon, you're the only one here who isn't from Australia or Aotearoa, New Zealand. Do you have any tips for us on how to reintegrate into society coming out of our lockdowns and, our, and being shut away? I mean, even though we had we had a lockdown in Germany for about seven months, but it was never comparable to what happened in Australia or New Zealand. So I guess the, the situation's always been kind of different. We've always been able to see people to some... I mean, for maybe for a while that we couldn't see anyone, but we, it's, been a, it's been a while now that we've been able to see people. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I'm socially the best person at the best of times. Um, I feel like... <laughs> I kind of get 
I mean, I just started a new job and I had dinner with my like office mates the other day and my immediate office mate, I mean, the person who I literally share an office with, she said that I was an introvert. And I was like, as, as in of me, she said that Simon, you're an introvert. And I was like, I don't think I'm an introvert. I just, it's been a long time since I've socialized with anyone. So I've forgotten what to do. But I think that tips wise, you got to be weird for a while and then get out there in the community and I think also the, the way COVID's situated in different societies has, has become quite different. I think when I was in Australia, I was particularly worried about it. And I think that the kind of social environment encourages people to be particularly anxious about the disease. But in Germany, I mean, there's still, you still have to wear masks in, in enclosed spaces and like shops and stuff and so on. And I had to wear a mask on when I'm not in my office per se, but when I'm in, moving in a building and so on. But otherwise, people have accepted that there is that there will be death related to the disease. And I, I th- there was an interesting discussion. I mean, there was a kind of discussion I saw on Twitter. People saying that Australia and New Zealand are banning an elimination strategy means that people who have pre-existing health conditions are disabled or uh, so on are being kind of left out of the conversation. That they're not being considered when we relate to these kind of issues. And I think I think that's a kind of a legitimate criticism, but it's a criticism that doesn't fly here in Germany. You know, people have just decided that there will be deaths. And as a society, we just have to kind of move on with the virus now. I mean, they're talking about the pandemic being ended by this sort of like um, early next year. So, whereas I'm not sure whether Australia and New Zealand have any expectation that the pandemic will be over soon. Um, so I know Denmark has declared the pandemic to not be of to not be an emergency anymore, and that they've essentially moved on from it. So that does sort of put New Zealand Australia in a slightly unique position of moving away from elimination to having to live with the virus, and we're doing it much later than most of the world, partly because of early success. So we're, I suppose, now going through the same psychological experience that most of the world went from 18 to 12 months ago i don't think uh, at least the feeling in germany is that you can't plunge your country into the level of lockdown that australia and new zealand had indefinitely it's just not not feasible economically it's not feasible socially and that people just have to live with the the kind of circumstances that a more open economy and society requires a certain amount of deaths that's that's the trade-off right that's that's the gamble that people have been decided to take in some countries where they say well you know it is what it is and it is really blasé and really it sounds really flippant to say that and i think australians and i think and i think new zealanders to, to a degree as well i think there is a distinct discomfort with that idea that discomfort with the idea of like oh well you know whatever it may be it may be and you know let's just open up again i think there is a real sense of responsibility uh, is it responsibility or you know maybe it's a sense of community spirit i guess in a nice way to to not do that and to do that kind of you know lockdown positive lockdown safe environments i I don't know there just seems to be a a real discomfort in australia with that idea of just yeah let everything open and if people die people die you know so in new zealand lockdowns have broadly had about 85 percent support when polled so they've been very popular and the transition toward the way from elimination has been, at least amongst the people that I'm friends with, it's been critiqued quite heavily and lots of people think that, you know, we're going to end up in the same sort of suffering that most of the, the rest of the world has. And I think we're all quite keen to sort of avoid that and to, like you say, Matt, take some sort of responsibility for people who are maybe immunocompromised or had underlying health conditions. 
the funny thing is that when we talk about accepting or, or not accepting death, disease, long COVID, et cetera, et cetera, of course, that's not distributed equity. You could make a fairly feasible argument that opening up is actually, if you're an able-bodied person who is not immunocompromised and therefore the vast majority of the Australian, et cetera, et cetera, you're kind of voting on behalf of those who are immunocompromised. So that's an interesting understanding, again, political junkie. So that's an interesting understanding of citizenship and how you feel. Democracy works and kind of what you feel, how you feel somebody's right to decide a political or policy direction is versus the responsibility. I suppose part of the anxiety from Australians and Kiwis is that we all know, sociologically speaking and anthropologically speaking, we don't exist as abstract citizens in a democracy. We exist as belonging to communities who we've sort of tied up, especially when we know that previously we've been able to do that and have very successful policy programs that have led to us getting very good results against COVID. So it's not, this is the first time it's felt sort of either forced upon us or the first time that we've had to sort of grapple with something that, you know, the vast majority of the world has gone through. So in, in a sense, it's, a, I suppose, a loss of privilege. We've lost our sort of privileged status as the corners, little corner of the world that didn't have a major COVID issue. And I suppose, yeah, I suppose all of these things are things we're going to have to grapple with, not just theoretically and anthropologically, but in our sort of day-to-day practices. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was talking to some people recently, and it was sort of in, there were some interesting reactions. So Canberra's going to start opening up from the 15th of October, which will be just a little bit after this podcast comes. No, it'll be just a little bit before this podcast has come out. And my favourite burger joint is having a competition. They're going to serve 10 people, which is within restrictions, uh, just after the lockdown is lifted at like 12.01 or something. So it all fits within the restrictions, just 10 people in the restaurant. And I just cracked a joke. I just said, man, if I knew 10 people in Canberra these days are totally efficient. But quite a few people were like, whoa, and like joined the first super spreader event and were quite nervous about that. Now, I'm very much, I follow the restrictions but both ways, like as, a, as they're opening up, I have a decent amount of faith in the ACT authorities. All good. But you can see that ongoing nervousness in the community that really surprised me with the group I was talking to. Yeah, I'm definitely not planning to celebrate by going to a nightclub and going out on the first night. It's definitely not the plan. Stay home, for, stay home and slowly reincorporate myself back into the community either for the good of the community or for the good of myself, one of the two. Yeah, and fair enough. I think there's something to be said for how COVID-19 has changed the perspectives on how we see ourselves in the world and our community more specifically. I think how at least I view my responsibility towards my community and the people in my community has shifted dramatically. Not that I wasn't particularly community-minded and selfish before, but I think it's definitely ramped up a bit more where... I try and give people two meter space and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, just you're a lot more conscious of your own impact in the world than you were before, I think, at least from my perspective. That's all we've got time for this week. I want to thank Simon. You're welcome. I want to thank Alex. Thanks, Joe. And Matt. Thank you. And I've been Joe. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producer is the wonderful Matthew Fung. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the familiar strange. Not the Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com.
If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, read at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant Martin, Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange.